Thank you, everyone. After seeing our new sister, a beautiful baptism in that song, I feel like I should be preaching from Romans 6, particularly starting around verse 3, which is one of those two passages that says we're baptized into Christ, which is not the end of the journey, but it's certainly a point of entrance into the kingdom of light. I would love to teach on that, but that'll go to next week's speaker. This is Romans 5 today, and if you've not been with us until today, this is a series that's been going on for several weeks that uh, Tom and Jeff and I have put together here. We have a little PowerPoint. Okay, I've got a name for this. You'll understand that in a moment. Uh, curse reverse. If nothing else, if you just remember that those words go together, not just they rhyme, but they're not arbitrary, it means something, I think that'll be really good. Paul has written Romans for a particular reason. Paul was in the eastern Mediterranean, and there's trouble. In the east, there's disunity among some Christians who say, you gotta become a Jew before you can be a Christian, including circumcision. And other Christians said, no, although it's valuable, the old law and the Sabbath and kosher and these rules are not required for Christians. And there's a disagreement on that. Paul doesn't want that dispute, which you read about in the book of Acts and Galatians, for example. He doesn't want that trouble. He doesn't want the water being stirred up and that trouble to go to the western Mediterranean, especially not to Rome, because that's the capital. And that's why he writes Romans. I mean, it's all about the basis of true unity in Christ cannot be on works of the law, Torah. The basis of true unity on Christ has to be justification by faith. It's not what we do. This is a big deal. Paul also knows that if the trouble that's been brewing spreads, he won't get his financial support. And what am I saying? Well, you've got to look at the whole letter. At the end of Romans, chapter 15, Paul announces his plans. He wants them to take up a collection and send him on to Spain, which at that point was believed to be the end of the world. And that's as far away as you can go. So he's coming from that, the Jerusalem side. He's on the way to Rome. He'd never been there before. But he wants to go to Spain. And he wants to take up a special contribution For that purpose, he's not going to be sent on if this trouble breaks out. Don't take my word for it. Read Romans 15. We may get to it in a few weeks, but you can read it before then. That's just fine. We ended last week in a great message on Abraham being justified by faith. And we may not realize how radical this is. What were the people at the time saying? I'd like you to look at what the rabbis were saying about Abraham And see what strikes you. They said things like, and this is a prayer, You, O Lord, have not appointed repentance for the righteous, but for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against you. They didn't sin? Did you read Genesis? Well, Abraham was perfect in all his actions with the Lord and pleasing through righteousness. Okay, he was righteous, he was pleasing, he was not perfect. But it's this, these traditions kind of make people, well, I would just say slapping on a healthy dose of whitewash 
except it's not very healthy. It's not real. Here's another passage. This is not Bible. Okay, this is not Bible. This is in tradition, okay? We find Abraham, our forefather, had performed the whole law before it was given. How did he do that? And the faith with which their ancestor Abraham believed in me, God said, that faith merits that I should divide the sea for them. The Jews were so good, such good people that when the Red Sea parted, they deserved that. Okay, now we look at what Paul says in Romans 5 with a different, in a different light. Since we've been justified or declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just been talking about Abraham, chapter 4, and chapter 4, especially that first paragraph, makes it really clear you're not getting saved because you're a good guy. It's actually quite the opposite. It's although you're not a good guy. I don't care how good you are. You're not getting right with God because of that. So Paul is writing this proactive letter. He's laid out the problem. The problem is sin, chapters 1, 2, and 3, not just uh, among those who never knew God, but even among God's people. And then the solution, that's the problem. The solution is justification by faith. That's chapter 4, where we were last week. And so he's finishing off, this will be the end of a major section of Romans here in chapter 5. So he says, we're righteous by faith, and because of that we have peace with God. Let's read this. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance, proven character, proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. This idea of God pouring it into our hearts. It's like Acts 2. It's kind of like Acts 10. It's very much like Titus 3, verse 5. So this is our first section. We have peace with God, and it's not through doing good works or being just so righteous that God just has to save you because you earned it, honey. I mean, if anyone had put in those long hours like you, she deserved heaven. That goes very much against most religious culture, which looks down its nose and says we're superior and we deserve it, unlike you dirty outsiders. And you need to become like us. And Paul rejects that out of hand. He doesn't want the addition of further requirements to the gospel to be added in and cause more trouble. Because anytime people add requirements to the gospel, that will tend to be exported, by the way. And when it lands, that is a serious threat to Christian unity. Hence the letter to the Romans. Peace with God. Well, what is that? Abraham is declared righteous before the law. And that's actually Paul's... <laughs> so he couldn't have obeyed the whole thing uh, before there was a law. That doesn't make sense. The law comes uh, maybe six, seven centuries after Abraham. He was justified before the law, before circumcision. And as Paul argues in chapter 4 and chapter 2, God looks at the heart. The Old Testament is all about the heart and grace, just like the New Testament. In effect, now here's a strange thought. Abraham was a Gentile when he was called. He wasn't a Jew. 
Come on, he wasn't circumcised. He didn't keep kosher. He was a Gentile. He was called out of the nations. He's more of an example of a righteous Gentile. There are no Jews, Jews technically until his grandson, until Jacob, who becomes Israel. What this means is very encouraging. It means that we're all, because we're all Jews and Gentiles, all on the same level, we can be unified in Christ. It means that Paul can uh, get his support for his missionary journey. You know, he writes this letter from Corinth. It's going to be the third missionary journey. He's been anxious about it. If Romans goes well, it's going to be, bode well for Christian missions. Well, then what is this peace with God? Jeff just talked in the communion lesson. Excellent thoughts, healthy thoughts about peace with God and how that helps us have peace with man, with our fellows. But what is the nature of this peace with God? I need to talk about that a moment. Is this personal peace? Is it like, oh, finally, exhale, monitoring my breathing now, and now I have peace with God? Well, I think that's connected with being right with God. But the peace in Romans 5 is not, finally, I'm dealing with my nail-biting habit. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm at peace. That is not what he's discussing here. It's not personal peace. It's more of a freedom from legalism, but not really, because that's Galatians. Galatians, Paul says, you know, we're free, and we're set free from, from the law, and we have peace, so we, we don't have to get buried under a mountain of rules. But that's more the legalism of Galatians. That's not Paul's angle in Romans. Is he saying freedom from turbulence? I mean, if you're a Christian, then things just won't get to you? That's not really what he... It may be true. It's not true there. It's not what he's saying. You know, I, I always... I go nuts when people say, you know, all religions are basically the same. Sure. Okay, take Buddhism. Actually, take a lot of religions. You know, the world is a bummer. Things are just hard. But the key is if you can get yourself in a state where you don't feel it, if you just kind of cut the nerve, cut your own existential nerve, then you can be detached and serene and it won't bother you. That is the opposite of Christianity. Christianity says, have your teeth extracted without the Novocaine. Okay, not, not quite like that. But Christianity has a robust theology of embracing suffering, not denying that it's real, not denying there's an issue, but a realistic pathway to doing something about it for ourselves, for others. It's so different. Christianity is not about just becoming serene or surreal. This is very real. So what does this mean? Well, the peace here has to do with Paul's argument earlier in Romans. See, Back in chapter 1, a few sermons ago, Paul says that because of our, our behavior, our lifestyle choices, if you will, we are God's enemies. The anger of God, his wrath, is working itself out in society. Just look at the ills of society. That itself is an expression of God's displeasure. We're enemies of God. He's saying, in Christ, this is reversed. Instead of being God's enemy, now we're friends, we have peace with God. We're no longer at odds with our creator. And that's the sense of peace. And it's a beautiful concept. I, I think of when I was just a seeker, and I've been a seeker now for a long time, since I was a teenager, when I was first starting out, I remember reading a book called Peace with God. It was actually a Billy Graham book. 
And this was possibly the first religious book I ever read, apart from a you know, children's Bible. would count, well, I guess I'd count that. Okay, the second religious book I'd ever read. And that book, there's something about it that was exciting. I mean, I remember I was working at Six Flags. This is not Six Flags, Georgia. This is Six Flags, New Jersey, okay? You say, New Jersey? What's that, a suburb of New York? Okay, you're just not from New Jersey. That's why you say that. But I worked there, and on the way to work and at work when, 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 when the crowds were low, I, I doubled up. Now, I know I shouldn't have done this, but driving to work, and it was about almost a one-hour drive to Jackson, New Jersey, where I was coming from, I would put my Kurt Vonnegut science fiction novel in the middle of the steering wheel, and I would go like that. I know it's against the law now, right? Actually, texting is against law. Is reading a book against the law? It should be. Okay, I know I shouldn't have done that. But I was moving from science fiction to actually religious fact. I remember I borrowed a book uh, by the... She, her husband got uh, killed, got speared by, by the Indians in, in Ecuador. Shadow of the Almighty, Elizabeth Elliot. And I borrowed that from someone. And because at Six Flags, my job was to scoop Italian ice. Uh, lemon or there was a berry kind. And unfortunately, I was, I was reading that book, and I got Italian ice. I got these stains all over. It looked like blood stains when I had to return it. I know I shouldn't have done that. But it was a time when I was beginning to turn towards God. And of all the things I read, I believe it was this book, Peace with God, that I found extremely attractive and compelling. You might think, well, why would you be... I mean, what was so compelling? And in a sense... My life was looking okay. I had just graduated valedictorian of my high school. I was, I'd been accepted into a pretty good university, uh, Duke. I had uh, lots of ideas, and I had incredible confidence, far more than I should have had, you know, obviously. <laughs> so what was it about this idea of peace with God and, and getting right with God? What was it that was so compelling to me? I don't know exactly. I can't describe it. I, I just say it happened. And there was something about God's gentleness. And it, it made Christianity seem not like a mountain of rules, but being, being accepted by a loving father. And something about that was new. Something about that wasn't what I was used to. Well, some of you are taking notes today. Just write down Isaiah thirty-two seventeen. Isaiah 32, because in Jewish thought... Peace and righteousness go together. If you're righteous with God, you have peace with God, very closely connected. Peace, not enmity, Romans 5.10, Colossians 1.21. But there's so much more. And no, we're not going to spend all of our time in verse 1. A little bit more in the following verses, and then we'll zip through the second half, and you'll see. He says, we've obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. More than that, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, that's important because earlier on, glory is bad. People turn from the glory, instead of glorifying God, chapter 1, they take glory in themselves. That's the human ego. And then they start glorying, boasting in their goodness and their Lifestyle choices. That's chapter 1. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, chapter 4. All the glorying, all the boasting is negative. Now, Paul's saying, because the curse is in reverse, now it's possible to glory in a good way, in a positive way. And this is easy to miss if we're reading too quickly. He understands the purpose and suffering 
of, or affliction, rejoicing in affliction. Hope doesn't disappoint us. One version, it doesn't make us ashamed. Remember chapter 1? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 116. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Hope does not put us in that position. With a Christian, hope is not a squeaky, mousy, oh, I hope it's all going to be okay. Hope is a confidence that has to do with knowing where we're coming from, where we're headed, and why we're here. And it's all about resurrection. It's not just this life, though it has implications for both lives, this world and the world to come. It's a strong hope. And boasting in the Lord is okay, 1 Corinthians 1. All other boasting is ugly and humanistic. And three times he says, I rejoice, I rejoice, and again in verse 11. I'll come back to that in just a second. For while we were still helpless, Paul continues, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, you've heard this next passage, right? From 101 communions. Rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person someone might dare to die. God proves his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than declared righteous by his blood, saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, see, peace with God, enemies, we're reconciled through the death of his son, how much more reconciled we'll be saved. Not only that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's going on here? There's a progression that you may not see. Can I point this out to you? And when I first heard this, I thought, maybe. And I looked at it more, and I thought, I think so. And I looked at it a third time, and I thought, yes. Let me show you the progression. He says, we were weak, powerless. See that? Christ died for the weak. Okay, that's the first thing. What's the second stage? Ungodly. People who don't know God. That's outside their frame of reference. They're not living that way. Third stage. He dies for who? Sinners. Sinners. And the fourth word is enemies. And these you could arrange in order pretty easily. Weak. He dies for the weak. I know you don't like being told you're weak, but the truth is you are. You're going to admit it eventually. Even if when you're an old geezer, you'll admit it. Might as well just admit it now. We had a, an ice storm in some places. I didn't realize how serious it was this time around. I'm teaching online yesterday, and my co-teacher says, yeah, we just got our power back. He's in Augusta. You know, Georgia had 70,000 people without power. 68,000 of them were in the Augusta area. So my brother Joey said, yeah, we just got our heat back. I'm toasty in Marietta, and he's out there in Augusta, powerless. Think about this. Godless. Not, we see, when someone's powerless and weak, you'd say, well, they couldn't really help it. Godless is a little bit of a stronger word. It implies ignorance of God and all that goes with that, which is not a good thing. And then sinners. Sinners means you know better, but you do wrong. Like our dog, Bailey. Now, <laughs> we have rules in our house. Obviously, you don't do number one and two in the house. Uh, we do that in the pine straw, and that's very important. The main rule in the house is, you, if you, many of you have been to our house, you're allowed in this room but not that room. You don't cross the line between those two rooms. And she knows. And sometimes we come home and she has transgressed. <laughs> she has walked into the dining room. Even if we don't see her, you'll touch the carpet and it's still warm. 
You know, if I had infrared, I would know it. Sometimes she slinks away. Once she actually went upstairs. That's forbidden. You don't go upstairs to the bedroom. And we came home, and she's slinking down the stairs, but she turns her head to the wall so she can't see us. Like, like we don't know what's going on. She transgressed. Now, I'm not here to argue canine theology, but in a sense, not too flattering for us by analogy, she knew what she's doing, and we're not that different. We're transgressing. We're sinners. There's a responsibility. You can't just say, I wasn't brought up that way. I was godless. You can't just say, I couldn't help it. I was weak. Ah, but it goes further. We were enemies. And that suggests sharp rebellion. See, can you see the sequence here? I mean, you might have some pity if the guy couldn't help it. But the whole point is, we couldn't help it. We couldn't help it. Absolutely, we could help it. Absolutely. And then I thought this about dying. Who you die for? You die for the beautiful princess, not for the ogress, (laughs) except in Shrek. Okay, but that's a little bit different. But you die for the the lovely. You die for what's beautiful. You You don't die for someone who's undesirable. But what does God do for us? And I thought, picture being worth a thousand words, I was going to share a really famous picture with you. Has any of you seen this before? His name is Dirk Willems, and this is from Holland. And he's very much loved in the Anabaptist tradition, that is the nonviolent. Oh, Anabaptists are people who say baby baptism had to be, is not acceptable. And when they concluded that in the 1500s, unlike Luther and the other Protestants, uh, they made a break from tradition and they were typically executed for that. Well, Willems took very seriously the Sermon on the Mount and the need to love one's enemies. And you can see Dirk Willem right here. Let me tell you the story. He's a young man. He, he, this is, he's living in Roman Catholic Holland. Okay. He's a young guy, and he hears the gospel, and he gets baptized. Now, in doing that, what he's basically saying is, my baby baptism didn't count, which can be really hard family to take. It can be really hard for the government to take when it's required pretty much by government. And and baby baptism had been going on for centuries by this time. It wasn't really so common in early Christianity, but later on. He did worse. After he was baptized, he stayed committed to God. He was so excited, a number of his friends were baptized. That was not good if he was trying to stay alive because he was tried and condemned by the established church in the Netherlands, and he was arrested. He was caught, tried, and convicted, and imprisoned. He was being held. He would be executed. But like the Apostle Paul, he escapes in an inglorious way. You know, Paul's let down in a laundry basket in Damascus. This guy knots together rags and makes a rope and sneaks away, Not totally unlike our dog, Bailey. But he escapes from prison. Okay. He climbs down, and as he's leaving the grounds, the palace prison grounds, he walks across the ice. The ice is pretty thin, but so is he because he's been in prison. So it doesn't break. But he's pursued by a guard. The guard falls through the ice. Willems is clear. He's free. 
He can go. They're not going to kill him now. I mean, they'll have to recatch him, but he's gone. He's out of there. But he hears the man screaming. And he remembers the spirit of Romans 5. While we were enemies, he remembers the spirit of Matthew 5. Bless your enemies. Don't curse. Don't even hate them. The spirit of Matthew 7, 12. Do to them what you had them do to you. And he goes back, knowing he'll be caught. He goes back. He saves the guard. He's taken back to prison. He's tortured. And he's burnt to death on a bonfire. Why would he do that? Dirk Willems is not our savior. Jesus is. And when God's taking this action, it's in a very different light. What would you have done? What would I have done? Now, I've thought about that often. What would I have done? And probably it's a good thing that I'm not your God. (laughs) Because I'm not sure I would have turned back, knowing me. And I I don't even really know myself. I know what I think is myself, but it may be largely flattery. You would not want me making this decision. What would you have done? But we see what God did. We see what, what God did. Look, right here. He, he died. See this? Died, 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 died. I looked at the... Usually when I prepare a sermon, I look at it in multiple translations. And for the New Testament, I look at it in the original, too. And... I'm sorry, it just doesn't come out in the English the right way. But in verses 6, 7, and 8, it's like a boom. It's like a drum. Now, apethanein is to die. So, apethanein. It's like boom, 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 boom. He died, he died, he died, he died. And really, to get the same feel... You'd have to have that phrase, he died, at the end of each clause there. Because Paul is drumming it in. He's resounding this this theme that Christ would die for us. He would die for us. God would die. It's not just, okay, I'll let you guys off. Our God is so good and merciful and loving. In Jesus Christ, he dies for us. No wonder we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I, I pointed out a minute ago, three times Paul says, I rejoice. And in this sermon, though I, I have to admit, this thing tears me up. In this sermon, it's that thing about rejoicing that really got me. Because I thought honestly, my wife often says, she's in children's ministry for the next few months, so she's not here right now. But, but Vicki will say, well, I, you know, you're not happy. I'll say, I'm happy. I just have the same expression when I'm rejoicing as when I'm not rejoicing. I mean, I'm... She said, but that's it. You don't have the strong emotions. You're not deeply happy. You're not deeply sad. I'd rather you be both. But I am deeply happy. I'm joyful. And then she just starts smirking and then laughing. But, you know, I think my wife may be right. Paul says we rejoice in God. We rejoice in our afflictions. We rejoice in hope. And I thought, well, am I grateful? Am I grateful for what Christ has done for me, turning back and pulling me out of the ice? And growing up 
in, with frozen lakes and ponds in New Jersey. I, I know what that's like, the, the fear of falling through. Man, I think I'm grateful. I think I've always been committed since I was baptized as, as a freshman at Duke. But rejoicing, rejoicing in hope, rejoicing in affliction, rejoicing in God, I don't know. You can tell me what you think. But I know that I have to constantly remind myself not to retaliate verbally or mentally. What do you mean retaliate? Are people firebombing your house? No, it's a different kind. And I've shared this publicly a few times. I'll feel inconvenienced by bureaucracy. I'll have to wait in a long line and I want to speak to the manager. Okay, that kind of thing. Retaliating verbally with sarcasm or superior comments. Retaliating mentally. Kind of like imagining what would happen if, if he fell over or she got what's coming to her. I would never do it, but it's in there. And somehow that attitude towards others is the opposite, not just of Jesus Christ, but it's the opposite of the spirit of rejoicing in affliction. And I've got to do a lot better there. And I would appreciate if you ever pray for me, just pray for that deep and abiding joy. Because I'm not sure I have it. I'm suspecting my wife is right. But I love being a Christian. You can make your own decision there. Okay, let's go on. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinner. No, that's a D. You're just looking at it wrong. All sin. So he's making a parallel here how the curse is reversed. Let me explain this. You know how it says in the Apocalypse, chapter 22, verse 3, there's no more curse? What he's really saying is that the curse of, chapter, of Romans 1, 2, 3, through faith in Christ, has been reversed. Now everything is going opposite. See, sin comes into the world through the first human. It spreads. And it doesn't just spread in the Middle East. It spreads everywhere. It's not like you're going to go to to India or Africa or Greenland. Wow, there are no sinners here. The world is absolutely full of sinners. But this is a total reversal, a total reversal of everything. Key words, and we're, we're done reading here, but later on, you look at the words that appear in verses 12 to 21, all right? Look in those 20 verses, and you'll see many of those phrases are, are lifted from chapter 4, 3, 2, and 1, Paul's looking at them in a new way. Everything is, it's a new day in Christ. Everything's working backwards now. The curse is in reverse. Now, there's no original sin. People say, does this mean you're born damned? Eh, maybe some original guilt, you know, a little Genesis 8, 21, but not original sin. That doesn't, I'm sorry, that doesn't work here. But there's so many positive things. Then how did sin spread? How did sin come to all of us? It's attractive, it's fun, at least for the while. Uh, human autonomy is pretty cool. That means you get to do what you want. No one's telling you what to do. Uh, it, it moves because of the environment. Environment, you know, it's, it's any behavior. It's caught or it's taught. But you can't just blame your environment. It's not just caught from others or taught explicitly. It's something we choose. It's something we, we, we make a choice for. We're, we're guilty. We choose it. But through Christ and through faith, we all have life. And through the gospel, 
Life is spreading over the whole world. It's like the whole world was frozen in ice in death. And through Christ, the sun is rising. Everything's melting. The flowers are coming out. And we're being set free from this icy prison. And I think that's, that's quite a biblical uh, metaphor there. Eternal life. And look what he says down here. Law came to multiply the trespass. We're said multiplied, grace multiplied more. I have some ideas on what that means. I have to cut it out of my message. Forgive me. See me later. If you want it, I'll tell you. He says, so also grace will reign in righteousness, resulting in life. Eternal life. Not just the life that begins in baptism in the very next chapter, just three verses later, but life that continues into eternity. Sometimes people say, well, you're going to spend eternity somewhere. Don't want to spend it in the fire. Spend it with God. I'm not even sure that's a biblical way to look at it. That's not the way I understand the Bible. But I do believe that that life will last forever. It's eternal. It's incredible. There is the second death if we don't choose it. And, and that would be what we deserved. And that'll be the end. That'll be the end completely. But it's an offer here to spend the next world in a meaningful relationship with the one we love and with ones we love. And ultimately, the ones we love are going to be the ones who love him. It all comes together. So it is just good news all round. So what to say? Well, eh, just to review, he states the problem. The problem is sin. Universal. But the Hindus are okay. No, they're not. Well, the Muslims are okay, and the Christians and the Buddhists, nope. The agnostics then, the Sikhs, the atheists, the Jains, nope. What, the Baha'is? How about the Farsis? I'm sorry. My Bible says sin spread everywhere. Stop being fluffy and sentimental. Sin is a verifiable disease that's gripped the planet. But there's good news. It doesn't end there. There's a universal problem, but there's a universal solution, justification by faith. So Paul sets out the problem, then that incredible solution, and as we'll continue next time, six to eight, we see the outworking of the gospel in our lives. So what does that mean? Well, it means we can be with the Lord, and he'll be with us, and we can even sing, be with me, Lord. It's a wonderful thing. But in terms of the curse, Romans 5 is showing us that it's been canceled. Everything's working backwards. All the ugly that started in chapter one is going the other way. Compare Adam and Christ, sin, righteousness, death, life, or I could put it this way, nurse, cancel the curse, curse has been put in reverse.